Hello! I forgot to say that today's episode is the Motivational Person of the Month for December, Joseph Reed. Okay, here we go. Hi! Welcome to another episode of Conversations. Today we have Joseph Reed as a guest and he is an author and a speaker. He's here to talk about his book, Broken Like Me, an insider's toolkit for mending broken people. And he talks about his own experience and history with mental illness, depression, suicidal thoughts. Uh, he is very inspirational in how he tries to connect and give back now to people who may be struggling as well. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I definitely did. I'll put in the show notes how you can reach him and find his book on Amazon and everything so that if you or someone you know is in need of some help, he is a wonderful resource. Um, so anyway, if you want to reach out to me for any feedback or ideas for the show, you can reach me at conversations at gmail.com. Okay, guys, here we go. Hello. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate it. Um, taking your time because it sounds like you're a busy guy. Um, I, I can be. You know, I'm a dad and a husband and I have a job and I have another job and I am an author. So I think That's we're all busy in our own ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. That's very busy. Um, yeah. Okay, so today we have Joseph Reed. He is an author and a speaker, and obviously he just said all of his other things, a husband and a dad. Um, you authored the book, Broken Like Me, an insider toolkit for mending broken people. So obviously we have to go back, back, back. What got you to um, where you are? Like what happened? Yeah. So basically I was born in 1976. Uh, my first grade teacher. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I mean, is it, I know I need to be a little bit more specific. Aren't, aren't, isn't our life like a collection of all of the things that it is. prepare us for right now? Right. It's so true. Um, where do you, where do you feel like it took a turn um, to the point where you would need to write a book like this? Like where did your life turn from normal kid growing up to um, where things went wrong? Yeah. So, uh, depression is something I've, I've dealt with since second grade and I'm 46 years old. So that's about, probably about 1982, You know, I didn't really address it until my wife, you know, we got married and my wife was pretty upset that my parents never addressed it. So I had to be hospitalized. Um, and through a series of tr very, very, very traumatic events, um, I kind of get worse. Um, I was actually deal with some PTSD from my first hospital visit. Um, and I meet this guy, Nathan, he's our worship pastor. And, um, and, you know, I tell this story a lot, but it, it's, it's so true that this guy just, he, he touched my heart as a guy that kind of relates in mental health very well to me. You know, picture a 400 pound, six foot seven black guy with uh, just a heart of gold, a big teddy bear with an amazing voice. 
and we were twins. Like, uh, I'm obviously a six foot four, 200 pound white guy, but like we <laughs> liked all this, all the same stuff. Um, and we both struggled with depression and he had convinced me to get some further care for my mental health. He was a very big advocate. And so I did. And I went back to the hospital and he went back to the hospital and we did just did this dance a lot. And, you know, he's trying to be a pastor and, um, and, uh, he had attempted suicide, um, in 2017, uh, in a very, um, in a very dramatic and, uh, intentional way. Hmm. And it really messed up his family. He, um, he had a lot of kids that were adopted, uh, eight kids, and wow. um, all adopted. Um, and this this one incident messed him up mentally, uh, where he where he couldn't think the same way as he could before. But he was still Nathan. You know, he's still my my friend. Um, right. And then he tried it again. Uh, and he took some pills and uh, I had to go up to the hospital and sit with him and just like, dude, what's going on? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, at that point I was just like, he had left the church. Uh, we were, we were at working nonprofit to help uh, young black men in the community to, to seek employment, doing really fulfilling things. And um, yeah, so I was, I was, I was making a turn there. I, at that point, I had been uh, actively involved in art in uh, part of an international art competition, the largest in the world, mm. uh, where I had created this. Um, uh, and it's here in Grand Rapids. It's uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, it, I, I made a 12 foot beer bottle um, <laughs> and I don't drink. My, the, the strongest thing I drink is chocolate milk. Um, and you'll get to know me. If you read my book, you'll you'll get to know that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I first person I thought of when I wanted to start this project, when I envisioned it in my mind was, was Nathan, uh, like, hey, this guy is creative to the bone. We're twins, you know, but he's just got all this transition happening in his life and just a lot of stuff going on. And he just couldn't commit to it. And um, I feel like he really regret he had a lot of regrets in life. I feel like he really regretted that. And and we, we, we made this sub this. What did I say? How big it was? Twelve feet. It was 12 seven. Feet. It was seventeen feet tall. I don't know why I said twelve feet. The initial plan was twelve feet, um, and uh, we we made it out of panhandler signs. Um, we wanted to represent uh, the broken in community, uh, and and we called it missing people because wow. there's two reasons people go missing. One, either they reject people, they don't want to be a burden, or people reject them because they don't know how to help or they just don't want that drama in their life. Um, and, and through that project, um, we wanted to bring attention to missing people. Um, and it wasn't just panhandler signs like we'll work for food. We had AA slogans, Bible verses in all different languages. Um, and then at night, the label would light up and you could see a person pressing out from inside the bottle. Oh, uh, wow. So it was lit up on the inside and and uh, I mean, it wasn't super impressive to look at, but at the same time, it was very, very thoughtful. Oh my gosh, the idea of it is so cool, though. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, when we first tried to do it, um, 
And the interesting thing is that the team that I assembled to do this, we had a, a, a meth addict, a homeless person, um, a college grad artist, and somebody that just celebrated 10 years of sobriety from, oh from my alcohol. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. So it was a, a group of broken people. And that's what I called our group, Broken People, doing the project Missing People. And um, we ended up getting the most beautiful spot in Grand Rapids right on the riverfront to put this bottle. And uh, yeah, it was a beast. And so Nathan just, he, I don't know, he always looked up to me for that. Um, And it was always this kind of this weird tension between him and I, because I think he always felt like kind of deep down that I was better than him or something. I don't, don't, and I I hate to to think that, but that's what I always got the impression. Um, And I, I just made me really sad. Um, And then on uh, January 24th, uh, 2018, uh, his third attempt, he took his oh, life. God, I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah. So he, um, and I don't know how graphic you want to be on this call, but I'll just assume we'll keep it PG sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly didn't see it coming. Um, all of my friends saw it coming. They knew it was going to happen. Do you think you were in denial? I think I was in hope aisle. I was in the hope mm-hmm. aisle. I was walking in hope. Yeah. Um, what what was his where did his stem from was his childhood trauma too and he just kept carrying it through his whole life you know don that's uh that's a great question and i think that um you know mold grows over time Mm -hmm. um and if you don't clean it up as you go it's going to spread and I think that there were just areas of his life that he didn't have a good handle on in making decisions. Right. And he definitely did struggle as, as a young, as a young boy. Um, and let's just talk about, you know, being a young black man in general. I, I don't know what that's like, but um, you know, I, I've, you know, I've heard there's, a, it, it can be very just in itself traumatic. Right. Um, I, did you ever try and commit suicide? I did not. I have not. No. Uh, I, I think of that often like you know when you hear of it happening i cannot imagine getting to that place mentally i just can't my my head can't wrap around it where you would feel that there is just nothing absolutely nothing to live for that nobody would care if you were here or not i can't imagine what that feels like that has to be just the worst feeling in the entire world yeah um (sighs) And that's, that's how I feel every day. Um, this, this hopelessness and, um, you know, whenever I have a problem, my mind right away goes to, uh, I should end my life. Yeah. My, my tendency, sometimes I'll go 10 minutes and I'll have a suicidal thought every 10 minutes of the day. Um, and it, has it been that way ever since you were in second grade or when did you like, how did you know you were depressed in second grade? I didn't. Um, my, uh, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Payne was just a very compassionate woman. And she, she just saw this over empathetic child that struggled with academics and was trying so hard to be friends with everybody but the only way he could figure out how to do it was by being gross and by being 
materialistic. And she talked to my parents and she's like, hey, I'm really concerned about Joe. And they didn't bring up the word depression. But they said, you know, she's she's got something going on. And, um, you know, for me, I've just always been somebody that that thinks about what other people are thinking about, even if I don't know what they're thinking about and, and caring about what people are going through. And that has just overwhelmed me through my life. So you think about it all the time and you're constantly focused on what other people are thinking about you or just what they're thinking in general. Um, I think, I think there's an aspect of it that's that, you know, um, what they think about me. I mean, let's just be honest, you know, when I'm at church, I think everybody's thinking about me. Like I think everybody's looking at me for one reason or another. It's not true. I, I know that. Yeah. But, but in general, when I'm like, uh, we had a guy, I was having coffee with my daughter. We, we do this every, every week. And uh, just before I got on the phone with you and this guy pulls out in traffic uh, on his bicycle and I just kept on thinking, you know, what is he going through right now? What caused him to just not pay any attention to traffic. Mm-hmm. And like, I just think about people and, and for me, Don, it's, it's really a blessing, I, I think, but it's also creates problems, but to really think about, especially in this, in this season of life where uh, there is so much uh, diverse, like uh, traumatic diversity, mm-hmm. uh, unhealthy diversity in terms of, you know, uh, voting and politics and, if we just thought a little bit more people about thought a little bit more about people and what drives them and, and the fact that they, what, what they really truly are passionate about and believe in it's there for a reason. Right. Um, you know, be empathetic with them rather than just being so dogmatic in your, in your own thoughts and, and ideas. And I, and I have very strong thoughts and ideas both politically and spiritually, but, but I also hold the idea that I could be wrong uh, very tenderly in my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to be able to relate to other people. And so, you know, when I lost Nathan, um, I lost that connection, um, you know, that understanding person that could relate to these constant thoughts um, of, of suicide. Um, and my wife, you know, my wife has always said to me, you know, she, she couldn't and she shouldn't have to deal with those thoughts. And the initial time when I was taken to the hospital is because she found some pictures I had drawn of, of me taking my life. Um, and I was just trying to convince myself to do that. And I find myself doing that quite frequently <laughs> where I'm just like, okay, this is the time where I got to find a way to do this. Um, mm. but then I've got really good systems in place and I've got really good friends and really good coping skills. When my friend died on, on January 24th, 2018, I got a phone call the next day. I didn't know because it was late. And I get a call from a friend that he passed away and I just couldn't believe it. So I hung up the phone and it's like, you know, when a, when a snake sheds its skin, mm-hmm. uh, something huge and heavy fell off of me at that time. And I, I hung up the phone. I was like, never in my life have I, have I received a more clear call from God to do something. And I didn't know exactly what it was. So I just started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, this may go somewhere. It may not. Um, and that's fine, but I got to do this and yeah. I've got to, I've got to pretend, I got to stop pretending like my shit don't stink Yeah. and, and get out there and just be real in front of people. And, and maybe somebody can resonate with this brokenness that I feel, um, because that's when I'm at my lowest point, I feel broken. Um, 
And I know a lot of people can be, be offended that I have an organization called Broken People and it's about mental health or struggling. But I, I, I named Broken People such because I was thinking there's probably more people out there that feel broken like me. Right, right. And if they do, like, and they search for it, like, this, they're going to hopefully find us or maybe find my book or, or something. Um, and that's, that's, that's the turning point right there is my friend died. Did you feel relief for him? Do you think that was the weight that came off that you just felt relieved that he was finally out of his misery? Yeah. So what I felt was uh, really, really pissed. And I want to say very strong words, much more strong than yeah. what I've used so far, but I'm not going to. Right. Um, uh, I was angry, very angry um, that he had done this. I was very mad at him. Um, and I was very mad at myself for carrying this weight of, of trying to be something that I'm not, of trying to fulfill the expectations of others, especially when you grow up in the church. Uh, and I, I mean, if you think of, you know, going to church four times a week, you know, uh, Holy Roller or whatever, that's, that's been my story. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you that if faith had been a part of your whole life. Yeah, and it still is. Faith is a very part of my whole life. But um, at the same time, like there are all these expectations of people that walk in a relationship with God that are just not reasonable and not an expectation of God himself, I, I don't right. think. No, and I agree. I think, and, and that expectation, like imagine you're seeing a pastor on the stage or a teacher in front of a school or a police officer. Like they have these high expectations and they're literally on a stage, right? The pastors are on a stage. And they represent all this stuff that you should be doing, but it's not real. It's not, it's not livable. And so when you don't have this real person in front of you, whether it be a teacher, or instructor, or a, a um, pastor, like then you feel like you're not good enough and you always live in this space of not being good enough. And that's just, that's just not livable. And I got pissed and I was like, I'm not, I can't live this way anymore. I'm going to end up like Nathan. And I've read some books, uh, recently when I, when I started writing my book that were just very personable and very conversational. I'm like, that's, that's what I need to write. I just need to write like this. I just need to be me and not worry about grammar or not worry about saying it the right way. Um, I just need to get my story across and the struggle across in, in a way that, and I, I wrote this down before I got in this interview, a way that's <laughs> true in a way that's understandable. Yeah. Well, relatable because yeah. if people can't relate, your message is nothing. It's white noise. It's like the uh, preaching, like you were saying, somebody gets up there and they start preaching. It's like, you don't even know what it's like to go through whatever it is that you're going through. That person doesn't know. So for them to tell you how you should act or should right. be, it's not relevant. Yeah. And that relatability, that's problematic for me. Um, and I don't strive for relatability uh, because if I do that, then I feel like I have to act again. Like, I feel like I've got to be something I'm not. And, and really, I just need to tell the truth how I see it. Um, and if it relates to somebody, good. But I'm mm -hmm. not going to try to switch my message or personality to try to reach somebody that in, disingenuously. Um, so here's my shit. Uh, you can plant in it or you can flush it. But it's my shit and it's true. Um, and it does a lot of good. Uh, it, it does some good at least. Yeah, and, oh, um, for I, sure. I feel like there's growth coming through my shit, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, that's and good as it should be, right? Yeah, uh, because the the other option is just not pretty. 
So um, I have to, I mean, I probably should ask your wife this, but um, a spouse or even a close friend or a family member, you know, when you see somebody troubled, you want to help fix them. You want to help fix the yeah. situation. So I'm sure with all that you and your wife have been through, you are a different person now than you were when you guys met and married. Yeah. How, how is it, how does it affect your marriage when, when you're in a down state and she, how does she deal with you when you get to that point? Yeah. So that's a great question. And whenever I present like, and she's with me, like there's, that's one of the questions that always pops up. Um, and she's very good about answering that. Well, uh, initially, so we've been married 25 years, got married when I was 21, she was 20. Congratulations. Thanks. And we, so we just grew up together, right? Yes. You know, we was, we were just babies. You know, people think they're adults when they're 21. That's just ridiculous. I know. <laughs> um, so and true. the way she responded initially was get angry, um, and yell at me and, and, uh, emotionally abuse me, um, she, I have this thing called trichotillomania, which is a hair pulling disorder. Okay. Yes. And you, people with trichotillomania will, when they're anxious to pull the hair, they don't know they're doing it. It just yep. happens. And then sometimes you'll eat the hair or eat the root or whatever. It's just something that, that happens. Um, and she would slap my hand. Um, so that was just, it was degrading and it was hurtful and it was abusive to some degree, um, to a minor degree. And I, I didn't know how to stand up for myself. So, but now we're at this place where she's so much more gentle, so much more empathetic. Um, like I've been able to tell her, like, you know, your people are only going to treat you how you let them treat you. Right? right. And so through lots and lots and lots and lots of therapy, like I learned that, you know, I need to find my voice. Um, and that was so important with my book too, just finding that voice and, and not giving a damn what other people thought about that voice, not trying to, you know, again, relate to other people so much as just trying to speak to them. Be authentic. Yeah. And, and a little side tangent. I, I, when I wrote the book, I wrote it literally to one person. Um, there's a person in my, my broken people group that lives in New Jersey. And I thought if I wanted this book to reach anybody, I would want it to reach them. Mm. So I'm going to, I interviewed them. I asked them everything we could think of food, history, you know, they had a very uh, troubled religious background, single mom, $45,000 a year. And I, I, I just, I wrote it to her. Uh, it was dedicated to my wife, but wrote it to her because I know if I could reach her, maybe I could reach somebody else. But anyways, uh, back to my wife. Um, she has uh, done a 180, partially because of the work I've done and a lot of the work that she's done. Um, she went from being uh, a very obese woman um, to uh, getting therapy uh, from a very wonderful woman that for the first time I met yesterday, uh, and we're talking 12 years ago, 13 oh years ago, th gosh. this happened. Oh, um, that's awesome. Yeah, and I can't wait to tell you about this. Uh, and she was going through the bariatric process, but I wasn't supportive of it. Um, I didn't think, I didn't see, it kind of seemed like the easy way out to me. And, and I think that happens a lot. And, uh, and then when I heard about all the stories and I heard about, like, I could see my wife struggling with diet after diet of, of not having that catalyst kind of move you forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, then I started thinking of it differently as this, this, this is, this surgery is an opportunity for her to find the motivation to move forward. 
And so I was all behind it. And she had like a year and a half worth of therapy from this lady named Laura Grebo. And, uh, and it, it, it transformed her and it really saved me um, by, by her getting this, uh, finding her voice too, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause we were, we were both very manipulative adults and use passive aggression. And, uh, but I was, I was very manipulative to get what I wanted and she was too. And we had to, we had to switch that. And the other thing too, Don, we, when we got married, we had pre-marriage counseling and uh, we, we come from a very traditional church background. And the pastor said to us, uh, you know, Melissa, you're very uh, dominating. You're very just, uh, opinionated. Joe, you're very uh, pa- uh, passive. You're very um, empathetic. And what needs to happen here for you guys to have a godly marriage is Melissa, you need to be more like Joe and 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 bring yourself down to this part. And Joe, you need to be more assertive and decision-making. So we tried for 10 years to fit this 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 pattern of what we thought, quote unquote, what the Bible says marriage should look like. And we just wrestled and we yeah. hated it. And when now we're just like, you know, I'm, I, we realize that we function better when we just act in our own, our own field in our own way and our own uh, beautiful way we're created. And, and she's very opinionated and I'm very uh, uh, passive, but I'm also assertive. Uh, and we, we function well where I'm not trying to be the, the head of the home but we're trying to be a team. Yeah. And that was a big long journey too. Like the stress that that caused in 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 tandem with my depression to be something that I was never meant to be was super hard. Yeah. So this therapist, we, my wife and I left our, our most recent church and we visited one yesterday and and uh her therapist was at this church and she hasn't seen her for a couple of years. And I just went up to her, I was like, Hey, you saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh. And uh I used to do this thing every year at Thanksgiving where I would send out letters to the 10 people I'm most thankful for, for that year. And, oh uh, my God. I love that. Yeah. It's really great. It's really great. It's really oh, impactful. Yes. And uh, I'm getting ready to do that again this year. And, um, and she was for several years, one of those people that, that was the most significant in my family's life. And, oh, and that's amazing. Can you imagine getting one of those letters? I mean, hopefully you do get letters like that, but I mean, getting a letter like that thinking, oh my God, I had no idea that I impacted that person that much. Like what an amazing feeling. Yeah. That's awesome got, you do that. Yeah. And uh, one of the, I just spoke recently at our, our police academy and one of the, one of the recruits was there as well. So getting to see her, you know, starting her job as a police officer and, and uh, that was really cool to, to make the connection after working with them. Um, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I want to talk to you about the U scale because I saw that I watched it and it was really interesting and to me very relatable a way for people to convey to others how they are where they're at, at that very second that you asked them. Can you go ahead and elaborate on that so people know what that is? So it was born from this idea and at the end of every chapter of my book, I have something called utilization. It's Y-O-U, utilization. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you take these principles, the concepts that I've used in my life, and and not expect to do them the same way and get the same result? Because I think that's one mistake that authors make all the time is if you do things my way, A plus B equals C, and that's just bullshit. Yeah, um, 100%. So, like, how do you implement this and what I what I would call Joeify it or you Dawnify it? Yeah. Since we're having this great uh, conversation. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And uh, 
so I, and, and, and I just really struggled with the, how are you question? Like when people ask me, how are you doing? And I hate lying. Like I hate, and a lot of times I would just walk by and not answer, but for the people that are most significant in my life, uh, it was really important for me to be able to answer them, but to not also take them to the place that's so dark in my mind, because I'm less likely to answer them truthfully if I have to tell them all the crap. Right. Uh, but if I could just give them an answer that conveyed all that information, uh, much more simply. So for example, I was walking out of church one day and this guy, Bill comes up to me and it's like, Joe, how you doing? And that's just recently. And, uh, I'm like, ah, you know, I'm just, I had this thing and I was just stumbling over my words. And he said, Joe, what's your, what's your, what's your number? And I said, Oh, I'm a, I'm a plus two. And he's like, and I was like, thank you for asking that. That made it so much more easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the scale was born out of my need to be able to communicate my struggle, uh, very simply to my therapist, to professionals. Um, and it's just a stupid, uh, stupid, simple way to, to, tell, to let people know how you feel very, very, very quickly. In fact, within 10 seconds, somebody will understand how to use the scale. Um, and that's what I love about it, though, because sometimes you feel like you're going to cry if you if you get into it. If somebody's yep. like, how are you? And if you're just having a really crappy day, you know, then tears well up and you just start thinking about it. And if you could just say, you know, I'm out of whatever, not a good day. Thank you for asking. You know, then. Yeah, it's a quick way. To, I, I love that. It's so quick like that. I love that it's dumbed down like that. I think that's perfect. Yeah, and I'm sure you put, you put a note for the video, uh, uh, a link in the video, but we can talk about it too. But just to give a little bit more light into how it works um, and the simplicity of it, sometimes you can't say how you're doing. Uh, I had a friend that um, went to Ireland and his wife, his wife was a therapist. He went with a nurse and another person and they were just friends. They were hanging out, doing an Ireland tour. And um, he ends up getting an infection in his leg and they go to the hospital they get some antibiotics they try to treat it but then it doesn't work and he goes into psychosis oh which is this really really bad depression you're kind of like you don't know what's going on um yeah i don't understand, totally understand what psychosis is but it's really hard to communicate and you're really out of your mind and um the only thing he could say to his wife that made any sense was tell joe i'm at a negative seven and what that means is there's a, there's a number on my scale, which is a crisis number. And it's, it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But at that number, at that point, that's when your loved one knows that you need to go to the hospital. Okay. That's when you're not safe. That's when you're hurting and pain to the point where you need to get uh, professional assistance right away. And his, you know, his crisis number was a negative six. So she knew because he wasn't making any sense at that point, he's telling, she's telling me that he needs to go to the hospital right now. Um, and they got him there and it was good that they did because he was in bad, bad shape. Um, you know, spending three weeks in the hospital in Ireland, eating potatoes and watching, <laughs> watching uh, the office. I mean, yeah, it doesn't get, it doesn't get much worse than that. Uh, although he loves the office. I do too. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> you think with my sense of humor, I, I would like it, but I, I just can't even got into it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. My scale is uh, negative 10 to 10. And if you're feeling negative, guess which side of zero you're on? Right. Yeah. You're on the negative side. And if you're feeling positive, uh, you're, you're on the positive side. And one of the things I think happens with other scales is they, they, they're not able to address issues like mania. 
Um, and mania is a significant problem in people with people that deal with depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar, um, and people communicate mania as a problem, but also a very positive feeling. It's very significant. Um, so how do you do that? Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> in, in a way that says, okay, I'm struggling, but I also feel really good. Because a lot of times what happens with people when they're dealing with depression is they feel really good and then they realize, oh, I may be manic. And then they start feeling really bad because they're scared about the crash. Um, where I encourage people to enjoy the feeling, but plan for the crash and put coping skills in place to to help that crash not be so hard. Hmm. So I can go on for a long time about just the, how how the mental health scale has helped me. I call it the Joe scale, but you know you would call it the Dawn scale. Um, yeah, yeah. No, and I it just, love that. I think that's awesome. And it reminds me of that saying: "This too shall pass." That it comes with either good days or bad days. You know that it, you're not going to be in a, a funk forever and yeah. things aren't going to be perfect forever you know that it all comes in ebbs and flows and you have to just ride that wave yeah and, and, and it gives you an opportunity to, to remember to celebrate because you could be at like a negative four and you move to a negative three like you can see that forward motion and even though it's negative still it's it's positive direction and celebrating that is so important i was looking up statistics. This is kind of a little change of subject here, but I want to get your input. Um, I was reading about how the demographic of 16 years old to 24 years old used to be just um, your average kid demographic, like some days good, some days bad or whatever. And now that demographic is lonely. They yeah. are dealing with loneliness. And here we have where they have a computer hooked up to their phone 24-7. They can talk to anybody. They can see pictures of anybody. Like all this interaction, you think that people would be feeling so much closeness with everybody and everything around them. And it's doing the exact opposite. Yeah. I, I just find that scary. And so interesting because I feel like mental health is at a tipping point right now. People are scared to come forward and talk about it, but sitting home with your thoughts, as I'm sure you would attest to, is not always a good thing. Yeah. And that really hits a good point. You know, the, the statistics have been coming out recently with that age range that the number one killer of people in that age range is suicide. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I think the second is like heart disease or something. I'm, I'm not sure. Or, or accidents. Right. Um, but yeah, that's pretty significant. And and you think about the elderly community too. Like it's just a significant chunk of people over 70 that uh, that deal with that as well. And that's very, very concerning. Um, my first chapter. So I, I dedicate 180 pages just talking about friendship. Because I don't feel like as adults, other than Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, like I haven't seen very many good, good books out there about how do you do friendship as adults. Yeah, yeah. And the very first chapter I talk about in there is, is cyber friends. Like, what does this mean? How good is it? How can we use it for good? And, and why can it be bad? And there was a study that was done about, you know, somebody that is online a lot. And I forget what the study was, and I can find you the information if you want. Um somebody that's online constantly feels more lonely at home uh, and and felt more disconnected from family, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas somebody that's really connected with the family will spend less time on, online. Um, and it just kind of seems like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a no-brainer. 
Um, but they're this way of connecting with people uh, so instantaneously. You go back 50 years and you have pen pals or you had long distance phone calls. Yeah, yeah. There was a cost to that. There was a cost that was significant, required boundaries. Um, and there was a time between sending a letter and receiving a letter. There was a gap there. Whereas now our communication is instantaneous and it's basically free and it's worldwide. I can text you from the toilet and you can get it in the shower <laughs> or on your refrigerator, right? Yeah, yeah, um, it's crazy. Or on your watch. I mean, come on. Holy yep. smokes. Where's Knight Rider? Um, <laughs> you know, and it's just like this. Inst- I don't think we're ever meant to instantaneously communicate in a way that we are right now. Um, it, it's not good, but um, I think it's primarily not good, but it can be good. Oh, yeah, there's parts of it that are amazing. I, yes. You know, just that I can send an email, you know, old <laughs> the old way of doing it, but I can send yeah. an email and somebody can read it as they get to it. It's not something that's so time sensitive, yes. you know, they can. And I think that that is fantastic. But then you've got the, I just posted a picture, keep checking, keep checking, keep checking, see yes. if anybody liked it, keep, you know, get that dopamine rush and everything. Yeah. It's like, it's one extreme or the other. It doesn't feel like there's a happy medium. The comparison is the thief of joy, right? Yeah. Yes. Always. And, um, and, and there, I think there are some cultural norms here that are very disturbing. Uh, that, you know, there's a couple things that go around right now that, that I'm trying to push back on a little bit. The phrase, it's okay to not be okay. And mental health days. So the idea of it's okay to not be okay is, is a wonderful idea to, to, to be okay with struggling. Right. Um, but if that's where it stops, then it's a whole mess of problems. Uh, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. You have to work on you. You 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 can't you can't be stuck where you are without being expected to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a lot of people stuck, and people that think, "Oh, I'm not feeling well. I need to take a mental health day." Well, work is one of the best things you can do for your mental health because it creates automatic structure. And one of the things that really, for me and my story and people that feel broken like me, a lot of times they struggle with um, lack of structure and not knowing what to do with their time. Really, when people stay at home, getting into that place where you don't have authority, where you have to abide by rules that are not your own is really, really helpful. Um, and there are toxic things that happen at work, but ooh, we could talk about toxicity and, and oh sure and and I think how that is overplayed and how we are unhealthy addressing quote unquote toxicity because I think we all could be toxic at times and if and if we didn't ever hang around with toxic people, we would be very lonely, yes. right? So we yes. think we can pull away from toxic people, but I have a chapter on that in my book. Like it's 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 that's not I don't think that's the the measure. Of, of how we, who we spend our time with. Um, right. I think there's, a, there's another way of looking at that. And uh, friendship is just hard as adults. It's really, really hard because we have, we have all these unwritten rules about how we should behave. Um, yeah, that's yeah. my soapbox. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It is very difficult. And I was going to ask you that. I actually had it written down. If you have new friends now that for the new Joe, or do you have friends that you've had your um, whole life? Yeah. So friendship is interesting and I have a unique way of doing friendship. 
um, very, very thought out, uh, and it saved my life. I have hundreds of friends, people I care very deeply for, and there are friends I've had to let go um, mm -hmm. through attrition, just like, hey, we just are different now. Um, I've only had one friend I have ever purposely cut off, um, and I've tried to restore that friendship, and it didn't work out. But how I do friendship, can I, can I, can I take a second to explain this, Don? Because it's going to take yeah, a second. Yeah, go ahead. I have this thing called intentional best friends. Um, and what this is, you know how I do every Thanksgiving, I do 10 thank you notes right. to, to people just to let them know that you, you really made a difference in my life or my family's life. Uh, also on Thanksgiving, I make a list of friends. And I decide, you know, what friends do I need in my life for the next year? And who needs me? And then I write them this this very sincere letter, and I just say, "Hey, would you be would you go on this journey with me for the next year? And would you be an intentional friend?" And this is what it means: if you need anything, come to me. I want you to know that you can come to me for anything. And if I need anything, can I come to you? Can can you be a faithful friend where there is no wishy washiness of where does where's the boundary lie between us? Like I can ask anything from you at any time. And that's okay. And um, I've been doing this for years and years and years. And it's this beautiful covenant between, between mainly guys for, for me um, that I know whenever I, you know, talking about being lonely, one of the constant things I would do would say, uh, oh, nobody, I have no friends. But I can't mm -hmm. do that anymore because I have a list of friends. Right. Uh, right now I have four intentional best friends. And without fail, I'll get a text today from one of them asking me my mental health number. Um, they're checking in with me. And if it's bad, miraculously, a, 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 a pint of chocolate milk will show up on my doorstep or a, or a, <laughs> a pizza awesome. or, you know, somebody will uh, Venmo me. Uh, somebody, somebody sent me McDonald's the other day, you know, through Grubhub or whatever, because <laughs> I love sweet tea. Um, yeah. And it's just, it takes away the excuse, the excuse of not having anybody. And like, one of the things I really struggle with, it's so awkward as an adult, is just not having enough money to do a lot for people. So on birthdays, who do I buy a gift for? And you know, I've got all these friends, all these friends. Well, you know, or if somebody wants my time, I have an intentional best friend and I have just a regular friend. Like, how do I decide? No brainer. Right. I'm going to choose my committed friend. Unless it's, you know, unless there's a severity, like if the other person is dying and my friend wants to go out for coffee, like I'm going to help the person that's dying. Right. Like, and right. I, and I, I deeply care for all of my friends, but I have to draw a line. I have to have boundaries. And this, this is a very safe, uh, a safe boundary. And, 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 and as you can imagine, Dawn, the French look different every year. Um, some friends I've had on my, on my friends list for, uh, for several years. And then sometimes we just grow apart. I can't, I can't think of a single best friend I've had in my entire life. They've all gone away. They've all gone through this, this ebb and flow. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I need to know who can be there for me and who I, and I really need to be needed. Right. Yeah. Um, we all do. Yeah. So it's, you know, so my friends, if they were like, my favorite thing to do with my friends is work on projects because I don't have to talk. I don't have to like go through that awkward thing, you know? <laughs> like, so if they have something they want to do, like one of the things I did with my friend was I pulled down a tree in his backyard. We were, we were supposed to cut it down, but I ended up pulling it down by hand, which is a whole <laughs> funny story. It's so great. I muscled that thing down and it was like, I'm a beast. Um, and well, uh, I love that. Yeah. It's just friendship is hard. And, and that's why I spent so much time on like, 
you know, what do you do with friendships that are not healthy? What do you do with friendships that are kind of like just dragging you down? Or what do you do with friendships that you really want to be with this person um, and you don't know how to do it? Yeah. Well, the way you go about it is like so pure and vulnerable. I mean, you're going for a pure 100% friendship, do or die. And you're just laying it out there like, will you be my friend? Yes. (laughs) Why can't we ask that? Why? Why is that so wrong? Why can't we have sleepovers? Why can't we play? Uh, I play trouble with my kids. You know, you know the little bubble, yep, trouble yep. game. I love like, that game. I love that game. <laughs> you know, going out for milkshakes or whatever. You know, it's, going back to innocence. Yeah, you know, I, I talk about another huge section of my book is all about journaling, and I have like four or five pages on journaling and all the rules around journaling, and and it was really complicated to write this because Amazon is my publisher. And, and they don't like what I did, uh, which is five blank pages of nothing. <laughs> there are no rules around journaling. And they right. don't like empty pages. Yeah. Um, but it's true. We, we make these rules. And that's why, that's why we don't do journaling. That's why we don't do friendship. Because we think that there are these expectations that really don't exist. That really are just something we put on ourselves. Yeah. Well, a, a blank page can be intimidating. Yes. You, know, you just look at it and it's like, this is going to be the most profound thing I've ever written. Or, oh my God, I can't come up with anything. My mind is blank. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you do a presentation, like when you're in front of like, I don't know, 80 people and you know, you don't know what to say next, you know, and you get nervous for me being able to say, well, I don't know what to say next <laughs> is, <laughs> is so helpful. Yeah. Uh, it's so helpful just to say, yeah, I'm really struggling here. If I had a desire for a presentation or when I talk to somebody, and, and especially for you right now, you're all that matters to me right now, is yeah. that I hope you forget where you are. And I hope that you're just with me and that that maybe everything around you is just, it, it just makes it smaller. Oh, so we can God, be present. Yes. Of course. I love that. I love, it's so easy to get out of that. And, and I write down questions just to stay on course. Cause I can get off track very easily, but I try and just listen, just listen to what the person's saying, because if I'm just paying attention to the next question, I'm going to ask, I could miss a nugget of beautiful information because of not paying attention. So a lot yeah. of times it's like dead air and I'm like, oops, Oh, I'm in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> Silence is such a beautiful, powerful thing, Dawn. Silence is so powerful. Um, I have trouble with that, though. Sometimes that empty space makes me nervous. Like, oh, somebody say something. (laughs) So so where can people find you, Joe? I just think that your message needs to be out there to the masses and especially to um, not just to people that struggle, but uh, people that are struggling and they don't feel like they have anybody that can relate to them that they can talk to, or, um, you know, where, where are you? Where, where can they find you? Yeah. And even for family members that are dealing, that live with somebody that feels broken, you know, knowing how to relate to them in a way that's healthy, uh, that's not codependent. Um, you can find me right now. I'm currently at a cemetery, um, (laughs) Clyde park and 44th in grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I don't think you can get here quick enough, but I, I hang out in cemeteries because it's, it's such a thoughtful, quiet place. And it really helps me contemplate life. And my daughter does it too, where you just, it's so silent and so peaceful and so beautiful. And you start seeing these names and, and ages of, of, uh, of people when they die. And it just, it makes you really consider the brevity of how you're spending your time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
I say this all the time, but it's so so true. Like I really, if this is the last conversation I ever had with anybody about this stuff, you know, I've given it my all. I, I've been completely honest with you, and and I and I'm and I'm completely content knowing that I've I've given you my best, and mm-hmm. that you matter to me. And and anybody listening to this, um, yeah, I don't know you, you, uh, but you know, I hope that you're able to connect uh, with this podcast and listen to other podcasts that she has because they're they're really good. <laughs> and how she talks to talks to people and thank you so much i appreciate yeah. that but if you wanted to contact me uh you know and you're not able to, to drive to the cemetery right now um my <laughs> email <laughs> yeah <laughs> my email is joe at broken dash people.org uh, my website is uh, www.broken dash people.org okay and then your book and you can only get it on Amazon and, or oh. on Audible because my, my, my daughter and I read the, the audiobook together. Um, oh. And it's really, really good. Like I, it, it, the, the production quality of it is so good. And I paid so little. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I love that. Yeah. But, you know, they talk about self-publishers really struggling all the time. But my book is a national bestseller. Um, Congratulations. And, like, you know, they talk about best-selling authors. It's because... You're not done when you write when you write the book. You're like you have to keep talking about it and keep sharing about it. And the really hard thing about that is how do I avoid from being avoid being disingenuous? Yeah, so you don't seem scripted. Like, okay, here we yeah. go. This to that and this to that. No, you don't come across that way at all. Um, but you didn't know what I was going to ask you either, so that probably helps a little bit. Right. Um, but no, I didn't. didn't. I love that too. Yeah, I I think it was a, a great talk. I got a lot out of it, and um, I wish you the best. I think that you are just doing a huge service to so many people, and uh, I hope a lot of people get a lot out of this podcast because it really it opened my eyes for sure. Yeah, and the best thing, you know, you Don, you don't have the answers. I don't have the answers, and you know, um, but I know how to ask really good questions. So reach out to those resources that you have that don't, probably don't have the answers, but can can point you in a direction to get there. Um, and I'm certainly one of that. Dawn is certainly one of that. She's had many conversations at her podcast with different people. And I, you, I'm sure you have contact information available. Sure. Yes. And, um, you know, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, is a great resource with free, free programs. Everything's free. And it's amazing. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate your time more than you could, you could ever know. So thank you and uh, have a good day. I'll be in touch. Word. All right. <laughs> I like turtles. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.